Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. The first thing you do when you clock in at the grocery store where I work is you consult the log, which is two sheets of paper taped together like a scroll. And then that scroll, it's just called the, the schedule log, is clipped onto the wall. And that log is just a big grid with the names of all the employees on the left-hand side. And each of those boxes, usually in one-hour increments, has a, a letter inside, maybe two letters. The letter R means register, that means you're on the cash register that hour. The letter P means product, that means you're in some aisle, whichever aisle needs work. The letter C means cleaning, the letter G means you're in the garage, you're collecting shopping carts, helping people load shit into their cars. What comes up less often, because it's a task that's only performed for a few hours each day, is WD. WD stands for wine demonstration. And what that entails is like, you're you're the free sample person. There's a little rolling wooden cart, and uh, you there are two or three bottles of wine, and you're giving out samples of that wine. And very often, there's some new cheese that's on display, and you're giving out samples of that as well. And yesterday, for the first time in a while, I was assigned to wine demo. And it was a Friday afternoon, and and Friday afternoons are not that remarkable. But this one was a little bit different because we were going into Veterans Day, which happens to fall on a Saturday. So people were coming in and they were loading up on alcohol for their weekend, loading up on burgers and buns, typical sort of barbecue outdoor fare. So I get to wine demo, and the task is you sort of read this little briefing about the three wines that are available for sampling, read the little briefing about the cheese, which is being sampled, and this cheese had olive paste and cow milk, sheep milk, and goat milk. And what was surprising, as I was like handing out samples of this, is people would come up and they'd be like, hmm, dude, the way that people who come up to a cart in a grocery store, all they want is a sample of something. They just want to eat something, they don't give a fuck what it is, they want to drink something, they don't care what it is but so they come up and they strike these poses of like exaggerated curiosity and they pucker their lip and they furrow their brow and they scratch their chin and they hmm and they go "Mm." all of these noises of curiosity and intrigue and they say oh what are you what are we having today and i would say this is a new cheese that we've got there's olive paste cow milk goat milk and sheep milk and every, every single person to whom I said that just sort of lifted their brows like they were intrigued, and they went, mmm. And everyone tried it, and no one would look at me as they were trying it, and as they would try it, they would do like mastication sounds, like And their jaw would be, they wouldn't be chewing like it was normal food, their jaw rotated as they were chewing, like they were savoring it, or not just even appreciating the flavor, as though eating the sample was not like a gastronomic or a recreational thing that they were doing, but an investigation, that this was an intellectual exercise. It seems nobody is too keen to acknowledge that, meh, they're just kind of hungry and, and like indiscriminately hungry. And at one point, a dude came up and um, he had a backpack on and he was a really handsome dude. And he looked a little ruddy, like maybe he'd been doing some kind of manual work. And he's got his thumbs tucked into the straps of his backpack and he's looking around. He hasn't doesn't have any things that he's buying. He's not holding anything. And he spots me at the cart and he walks up and he goes, uh, what do you, uh, what, what do you got here? 
And I was like, well, this is cheese with olive paste and sheep milk and cow milk and, um, I don't know, other people's milk. And then here we've got a rosé, a Cabernet Sauvignon, and a fucking red blend. And he was like, uh, can I, can I get a sample of all three? And I was like, sure. And when I pour a small splash of each wine into each of those cups, he goes, can you put them up to the top? And I tried to tamp down this impression because it seemed a little prejudicial, but I was like, all right. This is a red flag. It's a small red flag. It's more pink, maybe mauve. But this dude is coming up and asking for the maximum amount of wine that he can get. And so he eats the cheese, uh, the little, like, two cubes that I gave him, and then he, like, chugs the first wine. He does the, the clapping noises with his tongue, like he's trying to appreciate it, and he's like, yeah, it's good. That's good. Which one was that? And I was like, that's the rosé. And he's like, yeah, that's good. And then he looks at the, the display, and he grabs another thing of cheese. And he pops the two cubes of cheese into his mouth, and he's chewing them, and then he starts laughing, and he shrugs his shoulders, and he's like, Gotta clear my palate. <laughs> Can't just go from one wine to the other. <laughs> Chugs the next one. And he's like, Mmm, that's a really good one. Which one was that? And I was like, I didn't even know. Because it was just the only ones that were left were the red blend and the Cabernet. And side by side, they're indistinguishable. Both visibly and by taste. And I said, uh, I think that was the red. Dude goes for his third little cup of wine picks it up between his index finger and his thumb, and as he's lifting it to throw it back like a shot, I notice that his fingernails are crazy long. I'm not exaggerating that his fingernails were like three inches long. And uh, so he chugs the wine and then he claps that little cup down and he pinches it so that it crumples and walks away. And as he's walking away, I realize he's not wearing a backpack, he's wearing a knapsack and there's holes in it and one of the zippers is broken and it's jutting with like frayed plastic bags and bits of clothing. And that's when I notice also that he's wearing flip-flops and that the flip-flops are kind of broken and that his feet are really, really, really dirty. And I was like, oh, I think he's homeless. A few minutes later, a manager comes up and he's like, hey, how's it going over here? And I, and I said, I, it's good. I don't know if it's like an issue, but like a dude came in here, he asked to sample all the wines and he wanted all three of them poured to the top. And then he ate a lot of cheese in the process and he walked away and I think he's homeless. Like he wasn't, he didn't appear to be buying anything. And the manager just sighed and he was like, yeah, it happens. Like you just gotta be mindful of it. And uh, yeah, look for those flags. And I go, yeah, I'll try to be more vigilant. So the manager walks away. A few minutes later, a woman comes through the store and she's a very, very large woman. I would say about 400 pounds at least. And she's in a wheelchair, but she's not like wheeling herself along. She's kicking herself along. Kind of like a Flintstones car, like with her feet on the ground. She's doing this kind of like feverish kick and she's wiggling in the chair as she kicks and she's looking around and she, and her face is glowing. She looks euphoric. Every time an employee passes her, she's going, hey, where's the restroom? Hey, where's the restroom? I see her coming from a ways off, and I see her ask this question of three employees. Finally, as she's about to turn into the restroom, she looks into the wine aisle, and she spots the cart, the wine demo cart, and she stops. And she turns the wheelchair, and she starts kicking her way across the wine section over to the cart, the wine demo cart. And she's looking at the display, at the advertisement, and she goes, what are we having today? And she has like the fucking sweetest, most melodic voice. There's a lot like, the, obviously the greatest praise to be heaped on the legacy of Toni Morrison is that her voice on the page was magisterial and that's why she won the Nobel Prize for Literature. But something that is less often mentioned is that Toni Morrison had one of the most beautiful voices, like speaking voices, and this woman sounded a lot like Toni Morrison. But like imagine Toni Morrison's voice at like its most Cabernet. What are we having? And I said, 
This is this is a cheese with olive paste and goat milk and cow milk and sheep milk. I don't know. There was something about her enthusiasm that I was like relieved because there's something about standing at wine demo like with my gloved hands just sort of smiling over a, a sort of wedge of cheese and people are walking by and they glance at me and they kind of want to ask for a sample but they're uncomfortable and I'm uncomfortable because really I shouldn't care. I really shouldn't care. I really just want that hour to pass. This is not my cheese. I'm not protective of it. And yet, once I'm there and I see someone like abusing the privilege and they want like six samples of cheese, I get all defensive. Who are you fucking, why are you trying to take my cheese? I already gave you a sample. You've already had two. Why are you Aren't back you gonna here? buy something? Bear, bear in mind, I work for like a grocery store belonging to a company that I think it grossed like $10 billion last year. I make like 17 bucks an hour along with most of my colleagues. Anyways, this woman tells, she comes up, she says, what are we having today? And I tell her about the cheese and then I tell her about the wines and she goes, ooh, and she squints and she smiles and she's got these big plump cherubic cheeks. Can I try the rosé along with the cheese? And I was like, yeah. And she goes, so my name's Teresa. And I was like, my name's Alex. And I'm pouring her the wine and I pour it to the top. The manager did just tell me, like, look out for red flags. Don't give a ton of alcohol to anyone who's asking for the maximum amount of alcohol that they can have. But I'm just relieved by her enthusiasm. I know she's only, like, enthusiastic toward me because I'm the bearer of gifts. Nonetheless, I appreciate it. So I pour her some wine and I hand her the two cubes of cheese. She's commenting on the notes of the wine the flavors that she's there's something autumnal about it she's getting something floral from it like wet leaves bear in mind this is like a generic rosé sold at a chain grocery store nonetheless she's enthusiastic and she wants to sort of make a, an event of this she's in the moment she's being mindful and i was like oh cool i don't really have like a very sophisticated palate i can't really distinguish those kinds of notes but that's cool i'm glad to hear that and finally she finishes the wine and she's like is it all right if i try the cabernet as well and I was like, man, that's a lyrical voice. She sounds fantastic. And I was like, of course you can. So I pour her a little more Cabernet and then I hand it over and I give her another two little cubes of cheese. And she's like so thankful and she's so effusive and she chuckles and she's like, sure, why not? I'll have another two. Just so magnanimous and sweet. So she starts eating the cheese and she's drinking the wine and telling me about how she used to study wine, that it was just a hobby and she had a little like rack that she made herself in her house and it only held 12 bottles, which is not very many bottles, but you know, she would fill it up and she would stare at the bottles and she thought it was just so lovely to have in her kitchen. And so then she finishes that little cup of wine and then she gulps and she starts blinking like erratically. And then I notice like moisture is welling up in her eyes and tears start to fall from the like the inner corners of her eyes but she's not crying her eyes are not red she's her face isn't scrunched at all she still looks kind of euphoric but she blinks and like these little tears just streak down her face quickly and she goes i used to just stare at that rack of wines and like wish i had friends but i didn't have any friends i would stare at it all night sometimes sometimes i would drink a whole bottle <laughs> just staring at the wines waiting for friends but they never came. Ha ha ha. And she was doing this like very sweet sounding cackle, kind of like the chuckle that she'd been doing earlier, but it was like a little bit menacing because now she's talking about like having no friends and being very lonely. And I, I was like, okay, she's disabled. She's in a wheelchair. She's, she's 400 pounds, maybe. I'm sure she does have a lot of hardship in her life. And it sounds like 
gustatory pleasures are a great consolation, so it makes sense that maybe a little bit of alcohol, a little bit of company that she's enjoying now, the two of us talking in a grocery store, maybe that's just the kind of thing that brings emotions to the surface, and it's fine. She's not making a scene, she's being very pleasant. But I don't know what to say to that. She's just smiling at me, telling me how, like, miserably lonely she used to be, and I was like, oh, well, you know, I... And then I just left it at that, because I don't, again, I just don't know what to say. Finally, she breaks the silence, like she nods and she goes, yeah, but I had to stop that because one night my daughter came home and she was talking to me and she was really angry and she just smashed all of the glass that I had in my kitchen, including those bottles. <laughs> and she starts cackling again. And if I didn't know what to say to the other thing, I, I don't know. I really don't know what to say to this. So I just stayed quiet and I nodded and I, I smiled, but I tried not to be too enthusiastic with the smile because like, I don't like, how am I, I, I don't want to seem like I find this amusing. So it's like a sad smile, like I'm frowning with my eyes and smiling with my mouth. And then she nods and she gulps and another set of tears just sort of plummets from, just bungees down from the, in, in the inner corners of her eyes, but her eyes are not red. Her eyes are very white. And then she clicks her tongue like she's still savoring the traces of the wine. And she says, I had a little bit of Smirnoff before I came in here. That, isn't that supposed to kind of stay in your system for a while? And I said, yeah, Teresa, I think Smirnoff stays in your system for a little while. And she nodded and she clicked her tongue again, savoring the traces of wine. And she's looking around at the wine section and she's smiling up at the lights and we've got some holiday decorations up already. And she says, Oh man, I don't have an apartment. I went looking for an apartment today, and I went to an old part of town that I used to hang out in a lot. I didn't know it was all apartments for millionaires now. But I just went ahead and I looked. I went into the buildings and I said, hey, I'm here to see whatever apartments you have. Ha 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 ha. And she goes on to tell me how a, a real estate agent walked her through a number of apartments with price tags exceeding a million dollars. And she's, she's describing these apartments to me that one of them had black granite floors all throughout. And this one had a huge shower. And she's like, that would be good for me. I need a big shower. And then she grabs her, her belly. She grabs fistfuls of herself and jiggles really hard. Ha <laughs> starts cackling again. And people are turning and they're looking and I'm just like, ha ha ha, this looks really bad. Because this woman, her face is streaked with tears. She's grabbing handfuls of herself, jiggling her skin, cackling really hard, is conspicuously not that well and not in a great state of mind. And she's interacting with the person at the wine demo booth. So I look like I have just fed a huge amount of alcohol to this disabled woman who I'm beginning to realize is almost is also homeless. And finally she, her cackle settles and she looks around and she looks kind of like that fatigue, that set that sort of euphoric fatigue that settles after a really hard bout of laughing and she goes, "Yeah, but I I think it'll work out. I I'll find a millionaire who's a Christian." And she ke she keeps using the word millionaire. Like a millionaire is a thing that you find on the ground in in Midtown. How she'll find one and he'll take her in and treat her well and that she deserves a nice place to live that she's been through a lot and she deserves to finally settle down. And I was like, I, yeah, sure. I think so. I absolutely. Because I don't know what to say. And I'm kind of wanting someone to intervene, but I also don't want anyone to intervene because I'm afraid that might prolong whatever's happening here. And then she starts giggling and she's like, I think I'm feeling this wine. And she nods and she looks around and she looks back at me and she says, yeah, de I'm definitely a little tipsy. And I said, Teresa, I think you're also, I also think you're very tipsy. And she goes, yeah, yeah. What's that third bottle? Is that a, you said that was a red blend? I said, Teresa, I can't pour you another one because you just said you feel 
kind of tipsy and I think I kind of see it. I think you're kind of sounding like you're getting drunk. And right away, she kind of straightened up and she, she sort of reeled back and she was like, okay, I understand, absolutely no problem. And then she went to the bathroom. And when she went to the bathroom, I looked at the clock and it was like almost time for me to leave wine demo. I had been talking with this woman for almost an hour. She spent that much time drinking two, like, thimbles of red wine and sort of crying without affect. I don't know. It was a weird encounter. What about uh, Ella in Beloved who said, if uh, anybody <laughs> was to ask me, I'd say, don't love Don't love nothing. nothing. <laughs> I've heard that said a lot. Don't love nothing. Save it. You see, that was the... One of the devastating things, I think, in the experience of black people in this country was a, the effort to prevent that, the full expression of their love. And that sentiment that Ella has is conservative. If you were, if you want to hang on to your sanity, or hang on to yourself, don't love anything. It'll hurt. And of course, that's true, not just of African-Americans, it's true all sorts of people. It's so risky. People don't want to get hurt. They don't want to be left. They don't want to be abandoned, you see. It's as though love is always so present. You're giving somebody else, and it's really a present you're giving yourself. On the other hand, there. When I look back now, a couple days after that encounter with Teresa, I think about how it played out and how I felt as it was unfolding, which was, you know, it was really uncomfortable. And I was thinking like, uh, this is, a, not only am I feeling the pressure of like public decorum, I also happen to be in my workplace. So I have to be wearing my professional working face. Anyways, there were all of these layered tensions where I didn't want to offend her. I also didn't want her kind of making people as uncomfortable as she was making them. I didn't want her making me as uncomfortable as she was making me. So there was a degree of self-pity. And then also, and I don't know where to place this, frankly, in the hierarchy of things that were going, I think it was just a rotation of feelings. There was compassion. There was a sense of like, I can't say that I've, you know, been in her situation, but I've been in a situation like it. When I got out of college and I just felt like, like I couldn't get a job and I'd finished writing a book, but I couldn't get it published. I just felt like there was no place to go. And so I would just bar hop all the time and I would convince myself that these bartenders who knew me by name and were only being friendly really because they also were stuck behind that bar like I allowed myself to believe that they were my friends and that they were enjoying these conversations frankly looking back I think I was manipulating myself into believing that I was enjoying those conversations so I know that feeling of aimlessness that compels you into like getting drunk at a public place and striking up very like abruptly revealing deep ex like vulnerable conversation what i never realized in those drunk sappy maudlin years of my early 20s when i was just floating around tipsy and adrift is that I would have a few drinks and then start talking to someone and I would think, okay, well, this is putting me at ease so that I can have an open, comfortable conversation without the normal palimpsest of social anxieties. But I never took into consideration the fact that by being visibly tipsy, you are, you are offloading those anxieties onto the other person because they don't know if like you're going to remember the things you just confessed and regret it they don't know if you're working yourself up into some sort of emotional heat and you're, and you're going to start sobbing or raging my point is in the moment it was a complicated rotating 
layered experience. But once it had pretty much ended and I walked away and then an hour later was my lunch break and I recounted the situation to a couple of colleagues, I found myself telling it like a joke. Like the thing to take away from it was really that it was a funny experience. And I think you can easily tilt it in that direction. A woman came up to the wine cart, she was knowledgeable about wine, she seemed genuinely curious, she asked for a sample, I gave her a sample, she started crying and turned out to already be drunk. And then I started doing what you were maybe doing if you're if you've made it this far when you were hearing that story which is I was thinking that's kind of fucked up. This is a really sad situation. This is a person in need of help obviously and I'm here just making light of it from the what you would refer to, I guess, as the privileged perspective of the, and it's so weird to call it the privileged perspective, even though that's what it is, the retail worker earning low double-digit dollars per hour. And in telling the story right away to colleagues, I was making light of the situation. But I think reflexively, I was making light of it, not only because, like, that's my natural inclination, but because when you go into the break room for your lunch break, it's usually, like, kind of in the middle-ish point of your shift. There's been a lot of customer interaction before that meal, and there's going to be a lot of customer interaction after that meal. And a sizable, I'd say a sizable minority of those encounters are going to be frustrating, or at least taxing. And it's a great reprieve of the break room. It feels like a safe space where you can go and stand with other people who are experiencing what you just experienced and fucking complain about it. Because the frustration and the discomfort and the resentment that you sometimes feel as like a retail worker is itself a very layered, complicated thing. There are socioeconomic factors that inform your feelings about this job. There are social, there are interpersonal factors about how you feel about your colleagues, how you feel about your boss. There are geographical factors like I'm working in this grocery store in a very trendy part of town and I'm wearing like a lame little uniform with a plastic name tag, but at the same time I very much enjoy being here and I really like my colleagues and it's a fun time. It's a very complicated stew of emotions that underlays every encounter with every customer. And that abscess of tangled, murky, subdermal fucking emotional stew. That abscess is already pulsing before you encounter sort of the live wire customer. I'd say there's one a week. The customer who really jars you with their rudeness or their, like, ignorance or their weirdness. And Teresa, drunk, sad, homeless Teresa, was that live wire customer. And then I went into the break room and I kind of turned her reflexively. My first time recounting the situation to anyone, I turned her into a caricature. And the reason that this impulse, that th this thing that happened naturally, is, is, is staying with me is because, as I've been chronicling loosely on the podcast for the past year, I've been on a sustained, deep-diving, critical read-through of major, popular, mass-market crime fiction from the past 25 years. I've been reading and loving, and we're gonna go deep into this very soon, all of uh, those Lincoln Lawyer novels by Michael Connolly. I read the Millennium Trilogy by Stieg Larsson. I read Gone Girl and Girl on the Train and Big Little Lies. I, I read a, a wonder, a perfect Goldilocks sampling of the Jack Reacher series. I read three of them. One was terrific, one was awful, one was fine. And more recently, because uh, I'm scheduled to interview her on November 25th, I've been binge reading 
the entire Rizzolian Isles series of novels by Tess Gerritsen. These novels have sold about 40 million copies, and similar to Michael Connelly with the Lincoln Lawyer books, he has sold something like 60 million copies. All of these writers in this genre, they were writing about criminal defense lawyers, medical examiners, mercenaries, police officers, detectives, people with exciting lives, people whose line of work is that they have to go and confront the ugliest, most difficult, most discouraging aspects of life, of society. And famously, maybe notoriously, people who are involved in this line of work, particularly emergency responders of any kind, they cultivate a very dark kind of gallows humor. One time I was at Ale House, and this is in that heavy drinking early 20s period. I started talking with um, a pair of emergency responders. They were on a date together. I think I've told this story in the past, but the guy was um, a paramedic and the woman was, I forget what she was doing at the time, but she was retired from 20 years working as a nurse at a woman's maximum security prison. One of her first lessons on the job was to never ask what her patient had done to get into prison because in like her first week on the job she was having to help prepare an inmate a collapsed sick inmate for like an emergency appendectomy and she asked what this patient had done to get into prison and she was told oh this woman found out that her husband was cheating on her so she uh put their baby in an oven and then presented it to her husband on a plate horrible image sorry but she went on from there into talking it like laughing not about that particular case obviously but about other things in her job that had challenged her in the same way which was basically coming up to the moral question of do i honor my profession and render aid to this person even though my conscience tells me let them suffer do not hit that defibrillator button to resuscitate this child killer or spouse killer. But then her a boyfriend, he talked about you know responding to a call somewhat recently where a bunch of teenagers had driven at high speed into a tree. And it's something about the physics, like they the, the two in the front seat had flown upward through the windshield. They were shredded and they were in the tree. And he talked about how like through the entire sort of collection effort it wasn't really a rescue effort they were talking they were making jokes about finding limbs in trees and it sounds and i don't mean to aggrandize obviously retail work and hospitality to the level of like what is experienced by emergency responders the kinds of experiences that they just literally cannot live with cannot endure unless they learn to laugh about them but i do think something similar happens if you work in hospitality or in retail and I think it's especially the case where I am because something I was noticing recently is that if you work at the Nike store or if you work at Best Buy or if you work at The Gap or Victoria's Secret or Barnes & Noble or KB Toys or Spencer Gifts, whatever, all of those places have a particular demographic. And maybe it's a somewhat wide demographic, people between the ages of 18 and 32, whatever. They tend to be within a certain range of income, but at a grocery store, you kind of see everyone. You see the rich, you see the poor, you see people dressed conservatively and liberally. Every day at this Miami Beach grocery store, I see at least three people in bathing suits and three people in turtleneck sweaters. And when, over the course of the day, you are having regular, close contact with people across that huge spectrum of society, unless you numb yourself and go into autopilot, which does eventually just start happening naturally, you're going to have an emotional response. In, in, even, 
even if it's only in the back of your mind, to what you're seeing. If a customer comes up and they are rude, let's say a customer comes up and they're really rude. They're very curt. They clearly don't want to talk. If I see that they're kind of condescending about how I'm bagging their groceries or the order in which I'm ringing them up, if a person is behaving that way and I see that they're wearing a Rolex, I will start to viscerally dislike them. If someone is behaving that way and I see that they've got two kids and everyone is, is plainly dressed and the person is holding their EBT card preparing to pay, it's not like I'm going to appreciate the experience, but I'm not going to be judgmental. A couple days ago, um, there, was a, there was a dude waiting in line. He was the next in line that I was going to ring up. And behind him was a woman with like a slightly fewer groceries, but she had two kids with her. And she tapped the man on the shoulder and she said, excuse me, sir, do you mind if we go ahead in front of you? Just my, my daughter really needs to go to the bathroom. And the dude, he gestures and he's like, yeah, yeah, please go ahead. And as soon as they step forward, and as soon as I swipe her first item, her youngest daughter goes, mom, I don't have to go to the bathroom. Why did you lie? And right away, the mother looks mortified and she locks her jaw and she looks at her daughter and she says, stop talking. And the girl starts wailing because now she's being scolded. And I guess there's like a mixed message here. And the daughter thinks she's being scolded for, for having to go to the bathroom. I don't know. But now the girl is sobbing and she's wailing. But I don't have to go to the bathroom. We finished the transaction. The woman is being very curt, very fast, very like aggressive in collecting her groceries into her bag, but it's not like she's being a dick to me. She's embarrassed because for one thing, her kid is going off in a grocery store. Second, she just lied to a dude so that she could jump his place in line and now her daughter is calling her out on her lame little lie. But with all that context, it's clear to see that she's not being an asshole. She's just by, you know, snatching things out of my hand and shove, punching them, punching cans into her grocery bag. She's just embarrassed. She's frazzled, whatever. We wrap up the transaction. She takes off. After that, the dude who allowed her to go forward in line, he steps up. I start ringing up his goods. And I'm like, that was very nice of you to, to give her the space. And then I started laughing again. And I was like, I could tell she was really embarrassed when her kid said that. And the dude shrugged and he says, I didn't let her go ahead of me because I thought, you know, the kid had to go to the bathroom. Like, I didn't think she was lying, but just she's like a mom here by herself in the middle of the day with two kids. Dude, like, she's got like $100 worth of groceries. It's not easy. And the dude didn't feel bothered that like, oh, the kid didn't have to go to the bathroom. She fucking lied to me. Like, he just looked at this woman's situation and he was like, her situation is harder than mine. He did this very passively kind thing about it. And that that was like one of my first hours of the shift and it stayed with me for the rest of the day. The fact that in her desperation and her frustration, this woman kind of fibbed so that she could jump this guy in line. But as the person who like at where the line culminates, I get like overly protective about the integrity of the line. I get furious when people like park their cart, their overstuffed cart in a busy line and then walk away as if the cart is their stand-in. I just take, in the way of someone who has no authority over anything, I end up taking like way too seriously the small arena of authority that I have. And so I was kind of bothered, frankly, that she had lied and I thought it was kind of like, I don't like that I was bothered. In retrospect, I'm obviously not bothered, but in the heat of the moment, I felt like the, the integrity of the line, the authority of the line had been subverted with a fib. And I thought it was, and I thought it was like sort of deliciously karmic that her daughter immediately called her out for lying. And so I was feeling this kind of vindictive joy. And then I saw this dude manifesting just total passivity and total kindness and charity about the situation. And then I was just doubling back on my own reaction 
to this person's behavior. Both the woman who was frazzled with her daughter and this dude who seemed to, who had who had chill bachelor vibes. And I don't know. I don't know where any of this is going. I just keep having these encounters with customers that prompts me to reflect on things about life. Not necessarily, but whereas in the past, I think particularly I think particularly in those 20-something days, hanging out at bars, talking to strangers, I would see someone in a certain stage of their life. I would basically interview people at the bar, strangers, and get their life story. And then I would go home and kind of meditate on like where they were in their life. Try to sort of create this map of human experience and try to discern some sort of guiding principles of the universe. Who are the sorts of people who are perpetually bereaved? Who are the sorts of people who are perpetually rewarded? I thought in my d drunken twentiness that if you just hung around at bars long enough, at the place where people go to unburden themselves, to be tipsy and candid, that eventually you can hear enough stories, enough confessions, that you will start to see certain patterns of life. And it's true, you do start to see those patterns, but it's not a map. It's not like you'll start to see patterns and like you can then jump the system. It's not insider trading. But yeah, I would hear their stories and I would go home and I would try to figure out like, how can I use what I learned from that person either creatively in fiction or how can I use it to inform the, the trajectory of my own you know, bloom an adult life. Whereas now I'm in a similar situation. Obviously, it's a professional environment. I'm d d 10 years older, but I'm encountering all these people. They confide things here and there. They make comments. But for the most part, they just stand at the register and present themselves. And yeah, you can look at the things that they're buying and deduce maybe some small things with a trace of accuracy. They, they present themselves and then they react to things. And you get the chance to observe their reactions and then you react to them and you react you react to them and you react to their reactions and i find now 10 years later that in that same petri dish of human experience human exposure i come home and what i meditate on is not the thing that they ex told me they experienced or the thing they did or the thing they said what tends to stay with me and really distract me is an attempt to analyze and to critique is an attempt to analyze and to critique the way that I, in the moment, reacted to whatever it is that they presented. And that's just a thing I'm here to say. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next time.